Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome back to Death by Champagne, the podcast here to keep you up at night. Hope you guys are ready to buckle up because Mac has brought a detailed dive into the happy face killer, aka Keith Hunter Jesperson. She briefly covers his childhood and then gives us an incredibly detailed story surrounding his crimes as a serial killer. Major content warning up front for this one, it's pretty gruesome. But don't worry, she gives you enough time to skip if you choose to do that. This episode contains foul language, animal abuse, rape, murder, torture, and really graphic descriptions of body mutilation. We'll do our best to stay on track, but the bottles are popped. Hey guys. Hi, welcome back to Death by Champagne been a minute it feels like it feels like somehow <laughs> it's been 16 years yeah it's been a long time <laughs> it feels, i think it's been a week i i don't even know what happened uh, i don't know i really it's don't just like know. all of a sudden both jobs took off and well i did spend a lot of time in the last month with friends safely so that was nice oh that's good yeah that's we were plus. like we did outdoor activities in other towns three weekends in a row and I'm just oh like gosh, that's dead. a lot that's too much oh, especially after not leaving the house yes. for three months oh 100 percent I'm realizing yeah. how much social anxiety I had when quarantine wasn't a thing but I'm just now realizing it because I'm like oh like I've just like built up a tolerance to be in social situations to the point that it doesn't really bother me as much as it does now that I haven't been in those situations. <laughs> and now it's like a band-aid was ripped off and you're pouring salt in the wound. One hundred percent. Yes. Oh no, I feel so bad for you. <laughs> <laughs> like can't hang. Can't do I think it. 
this is the Taurus in me. I am a firm introvert, like firm, firm. I will go in my bedroom and close my door in the middle of a party and be like, don't come in here. Oh, for sure. But I, within the last like two, three weeks, have like, even at work, I'm always like set my slack to busy, let everybody know I'm getting down by myself. I'm just like pumping out projects today. And at work, I've just been like, do you need anything? How are you doing? Do you want to talk about what you did yesterday? (laughs) Oh my God, no. I'm like, we can Skype over video. I'll look at your face. What? My office I've been like, still, I'll talk to you on the phone. My office still thinks my webcam is broken because I refuse. <laughs> you filthy liar. I'm like, sorry, it doesn't work. Yes, I have a brand new laptop. Don't know what happened. Because <laughs> I cannot, cannot. No. I think it's part of me thinking that if I, whatever small bit I can do to make this feel like it's over. Uh, that's true. I'm just like, I can't live like this anymore, but I also am not a dumbass, so I will not live like it's over. <laughs> so my compensation for that right. is being a people person oh on webcam. Oh my God, <laughs> that's really funny. I've been the complete opposite, as little communication as possible. I literally had to call, well, I didn't because it was Friday. I was going to call my boss because I had a question and that's what I would normally do. And I was like, this is the last thing I want to do right now. So I thought of like just Skyping him the question and I was like, this will be a Monday problem. I can start off my week by calling him, but I don't want to do it today. <laughs> just because I literally didn't want to talk on the phone. It has nothing to do with him or the question. It was just like, I don't want to talk to someone right now on the phone. Can't deal with it. Like, I can't. Yeah. I feel that in my bones. Because there are still days where I'm like, no one reach out to me. I'm exhausted. Yeah. But yeah. I think I'm just kind of, I think I'm overcompensating. How I feel like I, the only time I can't stop oh, talking sure. is when I'm uncomfortable. And now I'm just like crawling out of my own skin. So I'm like, yes. let me just babble until someone tells me to shut up. Talking. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. So other okay. than our bullshit news, um, some of you guys blew our minds and joined our Patreon. Yes. Lots of new patrons. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to steal the first one. And thank you, especially Chris. The lovely emails we've exchanged sent us some beautiful case suggestions with yeah. details. Oh, yeah. You, like, sent us a write-up. Yes. <laughs> Still looking at that. Thank you for joining our Patreon. It means Thank a lot you. to us. Yeah. I'll let you have the other two. Okay. Um, Molly, thank you so much. Follow you on Insta. Oh, yeah. We should definitely shout out. Do I still have it pulled up? Because after I... um, When I saw that email come through on our Patreon, I screamed and wet my pants a little bit because I, Molly, I don't know if you know this, I have followed you on my personal Instagram page for probably (laughs) five years (laughs) and then decided that I was so interested in your Instagram page that I followed it on our podcast page and then imagine my surprise when I saw that you listened to Yeah No Yeah. Yeah. And now we're all just one now big gross internet podcast family. A big family. Yes. So her Instagram is Molly Burgess or Burgess. I'm sorry. I don't know how to pronounce your last name. It's Molly B-U-R-G-E-S-S Designs on Instagram. She has thousands of followers and she makes beautiful fabric moths and butterflies and yes. bats and spiders Totally obsessed. Beautiful fabric works. Yeah. So I fangirled and I screamed and thank you. <laughs> Our last new patron is 
which I'm probably saying this wrong again, Echidna? Yeah, Echidna. Okay. Echidna. Thank you. And their Instagram page, if I can get there. I'm slow typing with my fat fingers. <laughs> also, in Fabric Works. I don't even oh, think I told Olivia this. No, you did not. Um, can you see my phone? Oh, cute. Oh, my God. It's, it's a, a plush black Philip. black Philip. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, cute. Echidna's Instagram, we're going to plug that, is all lowercase e underscore kid underscore na, N-A-H. <laughs> <laughs> all of our fabulous so friends on Patreon are so talented and helpful and lovely. Yes. She also wrote us a really nice note I, Can I Patreon. just brag and like, die a little bit? Echidna, when I opened that note, I read it. Started it with, you guys want feedback? How's this for feedback? And I flipped my phone over and put it on my leg and was like, did someone just join our Patreon to, to yell at me? To hate us? To be mean to us? <laughs> to be mean to me on a smaller, more direct platform? And then I flipped my phone over and it says, I think you're amazing and I thoroughly enjoy listening while I work. I died. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I've never been so relieved. Oh I thought God. someone honestly joined this to scream at me. So funny. You guys are the best. Yes. You're the shit. The best. And I have put together a schedule for sending out stickers. Yeah. So it's been several months Sorry, since we did that. Guys. But we are on a schedule now. And stickers will shortly be leaving Yay. my house for the postal box. That's exciting. Those are our patrons for the month. And I also have one bit of small good news that was DM'd to me on Instagram. It was fantastic. Uh, Ams, who I believe your um, your Instagram handle has changed recently. Ams sent me one more state down, and it's an article from The Hill. Big snaps to Virginia. They eliminated a backlog of over 2,600 rape kits. And as a result of that, 851 DNA profiles were added to CODIS, the national DNA system. That's amazing. It is is fantastic such good news especially in these shitty times (laughs) like i'm not sure if at any point this past seven days you would ask me what good news was if i would have an answer none i don't know what does that mean (laughs) i don't either um i mean i'm sure i do but it's all also like really pointless and tailored to me right right (laughs) it's not big scale like happy news that we can all celebrate yeah Oh, but we did start watching Unsolved Mysteries. That happened. Yes, yes. I watched two episodes. Um, I watched them out of order. I watched the French one and then the case about Alonzo. Okay. I can't remember his last name now. I don't... I think it's Brooks. Brooks, yes. You're right. Alonzo Brooks. Um, I watched all of that one. I missed, like, the first 10 minutes because I was working as I... I was, like, towards the end of my day. So I kind of missed a little bit when I got wrapped up in a conversation. But I watched all of that one. And I watched most of the French one, and I watched, I watched the first one, but I don't, I did not watch for content. I was oh, bad. Yeah. I could not stay focused. Yeah. I think the last one, Chris's sister was telling me, like, I don't remember the connection, so don't even listen to mm. what I'm saying. It's like, a lo- like, kind of local-ish, but like the, yes, like someone who is dating someone, like the brother or something like that. I don't know. Like, they know who they are. Someone has a connection from your yes, area. someone has a connection. I did watch that one. We actually started it um, 
I was working with like with a coworker distance working and we had it on and oh yeah it was in the background and I was like okay we have to mute this because I can't but I listened to like 15 minutes of it and then I was like okay my first goal when I go home is to finish this episode yeah I need to I forgot I did also finish that one and it is astounding okay I need to watch it maybe we can have a another lobster date and finish watching Unsolved Mysteries Ooh, that would be great we just like deserve lobster always constantly (laughs) oh my gosh speaking of lobster shout out to Kate from Ignorance Was Bliss um, we recently, again, I got added to another Twitter chat and shout out to Ariel from Malice for making me one more Twitter chat to be part of. Every morning when I wake up, I just need to shout all those people out. It's like the first thing I do is open my Twitter and look at, I'm in like four conversation groups, a bunch of groups where we like give each other feedback and talk about new podcasting things. And I just check all of my, my pod squad tweet groups and see how everybody's doing i have friends from all over the world and it's really weird and cool yeah that is nice so thanks podcast friends for making my day (laughs) uh kate lives in salem so every time i talk to kate i'm reminded of what life could be (laughs) seriously we could have lobster all the time i know she was like yeah living she lives like right outside salem in another little town and she was like yeah it's great until october and i was like oh no i would embrace it if oh, i lived yeah, there i would, I would totally love strut it. into the town square in my witch costume all the day like, i day. have arrived every fucking day <laughs> i would just go to that art festival that we went to yes. and lay on the ground uh, in happiness it was so perfect it was yeah and i die to go back every day the second the travel thing is safer Ugh. I know. I miss... We gotta get out there. I, that is what I miss. I miss, like, going on trips. Like, with I one other person. Si- yeah, yeah. I don't miss going on, like, things with multiple people, but I miss... <laughs> <laughs> bachelorette parties. <laughs> yeah, like that. <laughs> but no I, shade to anyone's bachelorette party that we've ever been on. No, they're just a little bit just, a lot for an introvert. Yeah, they're just not my style. <laughs> it's not my thing. <laughs> Well, now you don't get to have one. So. No, which is fine. <laughs> Look at you. I'd have to be medicated anyway at this point to have a good time. <laughs> we'll just sit in your living room and watch horror movies. That's that would fine. be totally fine. I could handle that. <laughs> That's all we'll do. Hey, I'll bring the Ouija board over. Tell Crystal Lee. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that would be fun. Okay. On that happy note. I'm going to cut us off yeah, let's and dive into, into the most this. terrible story I've ever researched in my entire oh, fucking man. life. Oh, man. I'm going first tonight because this story is awful. And I am also going to... I feel like I talk about this every week, like how I am incapable of writing a short script. Yeah. And it's probably annoying. But also, I just... I have to tell you that it's 16 pages. Insanity. <laughs> Mine's a whopping three and a half. I just... <laughs> don't know how to not include the details Uh, okay so i've talked about this case before this is like other than being like four years old and sitting in the living room floor very specifically on the jade green smoke smelling carpet of my grandma's trailer while she drank natural lights and i drank out of a gallon of lemonade oh my gosh and we watched the oj trial oh look at <laughs> that you. was her idea of babysitting <laughs> and i loved it uh, um i stole this book that i'm holding up to my camera yes. from her trailer uh unless for some reason this is like a newer edition and i'm wrong the one that i have says 2002 on it 
Today I'm going to talk about Keith Hunter Jesperson through the book I, The Creation of a Serial Killer by Jack Olson. Jack Olson has a great reputation as a crime writer. Um, in the, the spirit of this season and us going over books, clearly I read this one a long time ago. As I wrote this script over the last three days, I have uh, read through almost all of it again. Can I just say that I am baffled <laughs> that no one took this away from me? <laughs> I read every Stephen King book I could get my hands on when I was 11 and 12, and that was unacceptable, I think. Right. Like, if my kid was 11 or 12 and they had the capacity to read Stephen King, I don't think I would take it away from them. But considering the anxiety and lashing out issues that I had at that age... Oh, no. Huh. Do you I'm think like, there was a connection? Hmm. Because now I know there was. Wonder why. I was terrified all the time because they let me read shit like this. Yeah. But I think I took this without anyone's knowledge when I couldn't sleep one night and I was like, I'll just start reading this as like an 11-year-old. And Casual. Um, I'm just going to start this off with a content warning overall that it is the most vile book I've ever read in my life. Jeez. Um, it reads like fiction, except for it is through Keith Jesperson's own words. Jack Olson had access to him, so he he also famously wrote letters and left notes across the country. He was a trucker. That's another thing that really, I think maybe that's where the whole thing started. Very obsessed with uh, women who go missing and are found murdered from roadsides or disappear while hitchhiking or from truck mm-hmm. stops, mm-hmm. and men who are later found out to be truckers that are murderers, because I read this at a young age and it scarred me. Um, just because it's in his own words, it is tragically disgusting. It is what I would classify as, um, unbridled filth. I think a lot of it is probably lies. Jesperson, since the publication of this book, has said that a lot of it is lies. Mm -hmm. But not that he lied, that the author lied. Yeah. When the author compiled the interviews, he said he twisted his words and turned it into something it never was. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. So just a just a big content warning. It's it's very, very graphic. And not just graphic in a way that he describes what he did. It's graphic because he is very open about how flippantly he murdered women. He doesn't give a fuck. He never did give a fuck. The only reason he cared was because he didn't want to have a bad reputation with his family. Ugh. It's upsetting. So again, that book is I, The Creation of a Serial Killer, written by Jack Olson, and part of it is from interviews and talking to Keith Jesperson. Uh, another article that I used is Serial Killer Soul Survivor Tells Story After 19 Years, written by Tony Scott, Tony with an I, from the Oroville Mercury Register, and an article called The Happy Face Killer and His Unidentified Victims by Kim Pasqualini on Medium. And I also want to reference the Happy Face podcast with the How Stuff Works Network with Melissa Moore, who is Keith Jesperson's daughter. If you haven't listened to that, it is really, really good. It's, I don't think I finished the series. It's 12 episodes long. And it's from, she's the host, along with another person from How Stuff Works. And it is, it's really insightful to hear her talk about it. And so it's like you get all of the good exposure, but through the filter of someone who was also traumatized from him. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot, I just think it's a lot more productive to hear the story through her voice and hearing her honest interactions and talking about what it was like to grow up with that dad and then find out he's a serial murderer. Yeah. 
So she goes through it, and you do get quite a bit of the story of him through that. But I think if you want to know truly what a piece of shit he was, you can read this book. <laughs> I Truly, I gave up. You're going to see at the end of it, I gave up writing. I gave up and was just like, I'm done. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, I'm also going to call out that I will say if you want a ranking system, this was harder to read than anything we read about Gary Ridgway just because it's in his own words. And there right. are also a lot of similarities. Ugh. We're going to see. So now I'm going to speed read. <laughs> Great. Keith Hunter Jesperson was born on April 6th, 1955, to parents Leslie and Gladys Jesperson. Jack Olson, the author, gives a good background of the family. Um, I mean, he goes like all the way back to grandparents and great-grandparents. They lived in Chilliwack, British Columbia, Canada, if I'm pronouncing that wrong, I asked on Twitter and no one responded, so it's your fault. <laughs> my problem. I looked it up on four different YouTube videos, and every single one of them was different. So oh, I'm great. going with Chilliwack, <laughs> British Columbia, Canada, and they later moved to Selah, Washington. His family history is a long line of stern and domineering men who were heavy drinkers. He remembers his own father as too drunk to help them with homework and worked Keith and his siblings to the bone on Sundays. He also revered his dad for being so smart and friendly. He picked up on a lot of really hard concepts fast. His dad knew a lot about mechanical engineering and woodworking. He would like pick up a lot of odd jobs that his family was like, how do you even know how to do that? And he also seemed to make relationships effortlessly. Keith Jesperson recalls being hit with a belt for minor things like getting out of bed 10 minutes late. When he was little, his dad asked him, or he asked his dad, how do you know if the electric fence is on? And you can guess what his dad told him to do. He peed on it. And he got shocked in his balls. Uh, oh and his dad laughs about it. Interviewed for Olson's book, Leslie admits that he hit all of his children with a belt. Keith claims his father in the belt made him a murderer. But to that, Les said, I was hit harder than any of my children and I didn't come out a serial killer. A lot of kids could use a little beating nowadays. I was strict, but I was a good father debatable <laughs> right <laughs> uh, very I think debatable. you don't both things you don't get to blame anyone else for you being a serial no, killer also not. he was a drunk yeah um in my opinion <laughs> i it describes him like he realized at one point that he was drunk by 10 a.m so like yeah that's a problem for sure um the jesperson matriarch gladys handled the household with structure and sensibility she was quiet and did whatever Leslie told her. She was very traditional. His family remembers Keith as distractible and fascinated by his surroundings. He spent a lot of time alone and had a really wild imagination. His best friend was his dog, a brown lab named Duke. Um, really upsetting stuff happens to a lot of animals in this story. Another trigger warning. It's not good. Mm. He remembers hunting gophers and other farm pests with his father and learning to snatch salmon out of the water with his hands. That hunting gave Keith a fascination with weapons. Armed with a slingshot and a BB gun, he quickly used neighbors to train his eye. Uh, he spotted from across a field one day a neighbor peeing outside, and he shot him in the dick. And I'm sorry, what? Shot him in the dick with a BB gun. Just a BB gun. Not a real gun. But still, he said he laughed when he saw that he pissed all over himself. 
Uh, and then he shot another neighbor who was like, I can't remember what her task was. She was outside working in her yard and he shot her in the ass with a BB gun. And his father, upon her dragging Keith up to the front door, he's a child at this point, like seven or eight years old, says, um, your son shot me in the ass with a BB gun. And she's like crying and limping and making a big deal out of it, obviously. And his dad said, I will be unable to determine the outcome or form an opinion on this until I see the evidence. Disgusting. And they laughed about it. I want to punch them both in the dicks. Yes. Um, again, this is a 300-page-plus book, so I didn't want to spend too much time on his childhood and yeah. history, although it is really fascinating, especially if, like I am... <laughs> Well, yeah, especially one if it's true and if you're interested in trying to form opinions that we're unqualified to form based on psychology, because that's my favorite thing (laughs) to do. So outside of his traditional hunting, his childhood is full of anecdotes of animal abuse and acting out against his peers. So I'm going to go over to the, of course, as always, Radford University Department of Psychology. They have a fantastic summarization compiled by Peggy Kruger, Kendra Justice, and Amy Hunt. Imagine being in the criminal field at all, and you get to be named Kendra Justice. <laughs> uh, so these are they also used the book as their source. So this is all information that I read, but I'm not going to write a summary of it. I'm just going to let them have their bullet points. Um, Keith and some schoolmates were forced to strip off their clothes at one point by a neighbor who then also revealed himself to them, and Keith ran away. He heard later that another one of the children that stayed behind was abused, mm-hmm. and he always he didn't really understand it at the time, but he knew that that was not okay, and yeah. it scared him. Um, Keith called a lady a bitch at one point. She yelled at him for something, and her 16-year-old son jumped out of his car and hit him in the face. And kicked him with cowboy boots. And his father later, upon the family being like, look what your son did, beat the shit out of him again. And then a bunch of these uh, things, too, that he's involved in, a couple of them are things that his brothers did that he took the fall for. Mm. There seems to be a fair amount of uh, explanation and... I don't even know what a good word for this is. Like, assumption from people involved in the book that the other two brothers were favorited by their father. Keith was always the outlier. Uh, Yeah, there's just a lot of terrible things in the book about animal abuse. They used to kill birds, and... Nope. It's it's not good. Um, Around the ages of 15 to 18, he met a group of boys who shared his interest in hunting and killing animals, but not for normal purposes or food... Or, like, getting rid of farm pests. They killed for sport. Uh, they liked to shove firecrackers into birds. Mm-mm. And watch them go off. And it's disgusting. Huge trigger warning involving um, animals that are considered pets. If you don't want to hear anything disturbing about cats, please fast forward about 20 seconds. Mm. That should be at least one push of the forward button if you're on an iPhone. Um, they would also wire cats' tails together and string them up over branches or clotheslines until they clawed each other to death. Ugh. I hate them. Yeah. 
Um, later, this is a theme that continued. He would, at some points, admit that he used killing animals as an outlet for frustration. And I mean, there was a fair amount of it that was like, we live in the country, we hunt, and Go then punch that a just... wall, you piece of shit. Like yeah. everyone else who yeah. needs to do something like that and get their frustration out. <laughs> later in life, he owned um, his family owned a trailer park, and he when he was about eighteen to twenty at this point. He um, he had a wife then. I mean, we're gonna get to that point, but he would just like round up cats that he saw in the trailer park neighborhood and trap them in various ways. No, and no. Eventually, a person said like that was my pet. Where did they go? And they had to say like, uh, well, there's kind of an infestation of cats and we killed it. No. <laughs> Yeah. No. There's nothing There's nothing nice to say about him at this point. No. I want everything that he did to a cat done to him. <laughs> I love that we're already at this point and the story hasn't started. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Keith met his wife Rose in 1975 at a local restaurant and they ended up planning a wedding very quickly. It seemed like both parties were involved out of obligation. Rose wanted out of her house and in his never-ending struggle to be respected by his father, Keith proposed, and they were married on August 2nd. They ended up having three kids, but were divorced after 15 years. He also, they were born in Canada. When he was in school, they moved to Washington. He had dual, like he could just go back and forth between the U.S. and Canada. And he was a wannabe uh, mounted police officer, but was injured during training, and that career ended before it ever got started. And that is when he moved into long-haul trucking. And he was good at handling the long hours. He could clock faster times than other people. And seemed to, for some reason, be built for life on the road. So we catch up with our timeline on January 21st, 1990, with Tanya Bennett. And if you look this up, it is spelled with a J. T-A-U-N-J-A. Tanja Bennett. Hmm. But pronounced Tanya. Tanya Bennett was 23 years old in 1990. She was happy and loving and described by family and friends as possibly too much so. She was developmentally differently abled. Author Jack Olson describes her as suffering effects of oxygen deprivation at birth and being, quote, naively impulsive. Also, just insert a slight warning here. This is a little bit of an older book, and there is definitely outdated language used in it. If you just shoot whoa <laughs> i tried to say 16 <laughs> words at once cut <laughs> if you choose to read this book yourself there is some language provided either by the author or keith that is not acceptable today yeah. um but tanya went to the local b and i tavern around 1 p.m on january 21st her mother said she watched her walk away towards the bus stop and the woman behind the bar said tanya was soaked when she walked in so she assumed she walked, but I also don't know how far the bus stop was from the bar. If it was pouring, there's, I mean, she could have just been wet from that walk alone. Yeah. The bartender reported that Tanya came in, bought a beer with change, and quickly latched on to two men playing pool. They were there together still at 4.30 p.m. when Tanya asked the bartender if she wanted to go dancing with them when she got off work. In a later interview with police, the bartender said she told Tanya, you should not go anywhere with them. You don't know them, and it isn't safe. Tanya replied, I'll be okay. And the bartender noticed that the trio was missing around 8 p.m. 
The very next morning, January 22nd, a biker noticed something abnormally bright on the side of the road down an embankment. Entwined in the foliage, a woman's body was left exposed. Her pants were pulled down and her shirt was pulled up over her breasts. She had a rope tied around her neck and the zipper had been cut from her jeans. She was on her back, her head positioned to the bottom of the hill with her arms overhead, and she was utterly unrecognizable. Olson wrote that detectives on the scene initially suspected that she had been beaten with a hammer, mm. and they concluded that it must have been an act of revenge. Like that they, they assume this personal. Yes, thing. exactly. They assume that this degree of violence could only come from someone who knew the victim personally. So they start investigating who she was with that day, who she was close with in her life. But it still took eight days for Tanya's worried mother to see the story on the local news, along with a sketch of the victim. She immediately went to the morgue and had to identify the sweet daughter who usually laughed while hustling men for drinks. Mm. In the months leading up to Tanya Bennett's death, Keith Jesperson described events in his own life as everything going wrong. His girlfriend at the time had stepped out on him, and he was living in her haunted house alone. He talks in the book about how there were ghosts in her what? house that they saw all the time. Excuse. So that's a side plot. Oh God. Okay. <laughs> It's <laughs> yes. a lot to take in. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so that girlfriend, alias Peggy or Peg, given by Olson, was out, quote, screwing another trucker five days after Keith had sold, if he is to be believed, almost everything he owned to get his kids Christmas presents. Hmm. Peg called him a few days after she disappeared and said she was staying with the guy she hooked up with and Keith needed to get out of her house or pay her rent. Don't blame uh, he her also for that. Has, uh, yes. <laughs> no. I mean, Guess maybe I'll not the best out. way to stage a breakup, but also, right. yeah, you're living in my house and I'm not there. Yeah. So uh, he has a story in here that I think is complete lies. Days after Peg left, he takes a freelance labor job. He's like unloading, I think it's 60 pound bags of something for like a grocery store or a warehouse in town. I don't know if he was a strike breaker or why this would have happened, but he said that eight other regular guys that worked on this job came up to him and threatened him and tried to beat him up and that he beat up all eight of them so badly that the only ones left standing ran away because they were scared. He claims to have broken one of them's arms and snapped another's leg and they, quote, scattered like deer. But this is also a time to point out that Keith Jesperson is 6'6 and almost 250 pounds. Mm -hmm. He described himself at his size as a lethal weapon all his own. So alone, just days after Christmas, he left for the bar thinking he would go shoot pool. He got there around 2 p.m. and ordered a coffee. He noticed Tanya as soon as he walked in and knew that she was aware that he was watching her. She proved that by coming up to him and giving him a hug when she introduced herself. Keith described her as, quote, round-faced with a happy smile and prettier than his ex-wife Rose. He shot pool for a while alone, but Tanya asked him to join their group. But he declined when he saw that they didn't have drinks. He wasn't trying to be their pocketbook for the night, so he left the bar. But at home alone, Keith got more and more angry, thinking about his own shitty circumstances. He decided to go back to the bar and see what he could get out of Tanya. She was leaving as he pulled back into the lot, and he asked her to come eat with him. He said he had to go home to get money out of his dresser, and she agreed to go. Once they arrived, 
She followed him inside his house. Hmm. And she said at this point, or he said at this point, he was already thinking about how he could try to keep Tanya. Oh. As he's describing this event, he was thinking about strangling the cats that he used to kill on their property while he made Tanya feel comfortable. He left the room and then came back and kissed her neck from behind, and she immediately ran for the door. It was locked, and he laughed and said, I guess sex is out of the question. She didn't move when he picked her up and carried her back over to his mattress. She slipped away from him as he was putting her down, and he fought to bring her back over to the bed. He comments in the book about how he couldn't believe someone so small was so strong. Um, In his mind, she began to kiss him voluntarily. Quote, when she realized I was giving the orders, she started to put out a little. Mm. He, throughout this entire book, conflates um, sex under pressured circumstances as voluntary and consensual. Right. Rather than rape, he never, ever once admits to being a rapist or says that he took something that wasn't owed to him or willingly given. It is extremely disturbing and interesting to read that through the entire thing, he will admit to a myriad of other disgusting crimes, but will never admit to that. I wonder what that is in people, because there are people like that who, like, are so... Even though they are rapists, they're so offended and disgusted by them, but they've, yeah, like, admitted to killing people before. Oh, yeah, and he over and over again says that these... he This is kind of the Ridgeway angle, is that... Just like Ridgeway was like, I'm going to save these women. They're dirty and unclean, and they deserve what they get. That was his exact yeah, yeah. thing, was that eventually all these women want something from him. They always want money. They always want cigarettes. Okay, well, you're picking them up in a lot. Right. They're not there because they love where, like, no. They they're not there because they can their afford their own cigarettes. They're there so that they can get money to buy cigarettes. Exactly. Yeah. And it's just the, the level of dehumanization that he puts on these women is disgusting. Um, so Tanya did stop struggling, but after several minutes, she complained that she was hungry and wanted to leave. Keith decided right there on the bed that Tanya would pay for the sins of a lifetime of women. He said he looked down at her and swore he saw his ex-wife looking back at him. Keith hit her once and then twice. He lost control as he hit every part of her face. He talks in the book about how he thought he would be able to punch her one time, surely, and that would do it after knocking out grown men with boxing gloves, but it didn't work. She was still alive after more than a dozen blows to the head, mm. and she was weakly crying for her mother. Oh, I hate Keith that. Jesperson strangled her to death after thinking, I can't keep her like this, and I don't want to get caught. With no second thought, he leaves her in the house while he goes back to the bar to create an alibi. He stays there until about 10 p.m., and then he leaves and drives around town, makes a couple circles, and then drives out to, like, the country highway area and scopes out a spot. Then he goes home, loads Tanya up by putting her in the car. He backs his truck up to the house. I had a huge Ridgeway flashback. (laughs) Yeah. He backs his truck up to the house and drags her outside. Um... He said she was stiff, and he put her in the front seat. And this is not his trucking rig. This is a borrowed hatchback. Mm. I do not know why he put her in the front seat, but...
but he talks about how it looked like she was asleep and maybe drunk, so he hoped that that would be okay if people saw. Jeez. And at this point, he also tied a rope around her neck so it would be easier to drag her out of the vehicle. (sighs) He had cut the zipper off of her pants after noticing smudges from his fingers on the pole. Mm. He threw it in a fire in the house. After he left Tanya on the roadside, he threw her purse out in a different spot and stopped at another truck stop to get coffee, in case anyone saw him on the road. He was seen there by three troopers and actually made small talk with them. Uh, He was in for a shock a few weeks later when he saw on the news that not one, but two people had been arrested for the murder of Tanya Bennett. I'm not sure the exact date that she came forward, but at the end of February 1990, A 57-year-old woman named Laverne Pavlinak came forward and threw a wrench in the investigation of the two men from the tavern. Initially, obviously, Mm. the bartender reported that she was seen hanging out with those two men that were shooting pool. Right, yeah. So they were getting investigated. Yeah. But she comes forward and readily admits that she and her boyfriend, 39-year-old John Savznoski, had committed the crime. John was listed in some sources I read as abusive, though I never could read details of their relationship. Wait, so she comes forward and says that he did it? Well, or that at they first, did it together. Um, if you read, I only found newspaper articles that dealt with their um, spoiler imprisonment, and after the fact. But if you listen to the Happy Face podcast, there is I know an episode where they talk about. Um, they have a journalist named Phil Stanford. That has received correspondence from Keith Jesperson that he talks about how she came forward anonymously. Like, she just made a phone call and was like, hey, this guy named Savznoski had something to do with it. Find him. And hangs up. This continues happening because there's no traction on the case. They're like, we don't know what that means. We can't find this guy. Whatever. She eventually identifies herself after they have a hunch that it's her. Mm -hmm. She's like, okay, yeah, that's who I am. So, Sosnovsky worked at a sawmill and was a heavy drinker, and the synopsis of this put forward by Phil Stanford, the journalist, on the Happy Face podcast with Melissa Moore. Um, Laverne said that she was tired of his shit and trying to get rid of him. He actually uh, describes Laverne, what's her last name? How do I pronounce it again? Pavlinak. He describes Pavlinak as a 63-year-old dingbat. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, so allegedly her boyfriend is abusive and she's trying to get out of the relationship. So she tries to set him up to get him imprisoned and it doesn't work. The police need more and more details. And so eventually she kind of gets roped into it and confesses herself, not as a witness or just a person coming forward. She was an accomplice. She claimed that the rope that was found around Tanya's neck was for her to hold her still while John assaulted her. Police served them with a warrant, and Laverne herself provided a zipper from a pair of Levi's jeans similar to the ones that were missing from the victim's pants. And a hair found to be similar enough to John Savznowski's that evidence, like they took it into evidence and said, yeah, this is probably his hair. I'm very confused. <laughs> Why is, yeah. she, is she doing this literally out of spite to like get him in trouble? Yes. So she's like fully confessing to an accomplice to murder and rape so that her boyfriend can go to jail. Ex-boyfriend. Yes. Whatever. That's... Yes. She has issues. 
um, I read in one article that he, uh, I don't think I listed it at the beginning with my sources, but I will put all of these articles in our show notes. I think I have one listed. It's by Michael A. F- oh, Lord. The last <laughs> name is F-U-O-C-O. Fuoco. Michael Fuoco with the P- Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Uh, the article is part three of a three-part series called Touching Evil. Students hear friendly voice of a serial killer. So he talks to some university students. He, like, interviews them and observes this whole process that later, when Keith Jesperson is finally caught, he talks to a group of forensic and criminology students at this university. And in that article, the writer, Michael Fuoco, says that... um, I think that's like I think where the abuse comes in or she's trying to like get rid of him. That was where I found some of the explanation that she didn't want to be with him anymore and kind of got roped into it. It was very confusing. Uh, well, he also in that article, Keith Jesperson himself challenges those students to look at the forensic studies and see how they could have concluded that that hair was found to be John's. He was like, well, that was never true. Mm -hmm. So why did they say that? Investigate that and find that out. Right. And then later, after they get off the phone, the teacher calls out to the journalist. He was like, those are the exact manipulative tactics that I would expect from someone like him, giving my students directions and telling them things to focus on other than him. Oh. It is a fascinating three-part series. Even though I didn't specifically use most of that reading for my sources i will link to all of them because they're it's great article so that was a lot outside of our timeline (laughs) jumping no it was necessary and i i'm not doing this case justice with 16 pages just read the book um laverne tries to retract her statements and confession and come clean but the jury didn't believe her her and john end up getting sentenced um, I think she got 15 years and he took Jesus. a plea deal because he was scared he was going to get the death penalty. Yeah. So it worked. They both ended up in prison. Look, I'm sorry, bitch, but that's kind of what you get. You can't uh, behave yeah. that way. So what the fuck? Eventually, what's going to save them is that they provided a purse. Part of the bullshit was that she only provided shit to investigators that was already known. Right. Yeah. So for a while, they were like, she's not credible. Yeah. But then I think kind of the conclusion when you listen to the Happy Face podcast is that when they were driving her around and they were like, okay, where did you dump her? They drove to the area where she was found. Like they were kind of in the area already because she led them oh. to the exact spot. But in the Happy Face podcast, I think it is said by the journalist Phil Stanford from the Oregonian that uh, there was like some sort of marker left up or there was like something that indicated it that she didn't actually come to that conclusion on her own. She didn't know. So what saves them eventually is that purse. They also provided a purse that they heard her purse was missing and they were like, yep, we have it. And it wasn't hers. Well, it wasn't, but they were like, why wouldn't we believe you at this point? Right. And after hearing that detail, um, well, Keith jumps in later in this story. This is me giving you a bit of the end at the beginning. Keith, at the end, when he is caught, he's like, nope, they didn't do it. And I can prove it because they didn't believe him for a while. They sat in prison while he was arrested. How long were they in prison for? 
Uh, like four and a half years. Jeez. So they're sitting in prison, and then Keith comes forward later and is like, nope, I can prove it. After hearing that detail, that he gave them the location of the purse, a sheriff's deputy named Jim McNelly took a team of Boy Scouts to an area where there was a ton of thick blackberry bushes and had them cut it all down, and they found a purse Mm. with her ID in it. Okay, then. Um, After this murder, Keith goes back and forth between relishing in the power he had while killing Tanya and fantasizing about doing it again, and then being so disgusted with himself that he would become suicidal. His urges took over on a trip to Sacramento in March of 1990. He had been hired for a construction job and thought about an old girlfriend that lived on the route named Nancy. As he was driving near her house, his thoughts escalated from having sex with her to imagining scenarios of rape to making her his captive. He pulled up outside of her house and he walked to the door, but she didn't answer. He checked the rock on the porch and her spare key was still there. Mm. So he opened the door and went in, but the house was empty. Like, I think it was completely empty. No Nancy. He went to a nearby store and asked if anyone knew where she was, and he was surprised to hear, very unfortunately, that her ex-husband and one of his friends beat him to her. She had been raped and savagely beaten a few months earlier. What? Yes. She had been, um, I'm not going to talk about the details of it, but basically her ex-husband murdered her in a fit of rage. Jeez. Yeah, just the sheer, like... Also, just the fact that this woman came into contact with not just two men who actually did this to her, but another man who came looking to do the exact thing to her. I think it speaks greatly to a population of people who need support. Yeah. Picked on, marginalized, taken advantage of, and victims of violence constantly. Huh. Yeah. Uh, All right, so our next bit in the timeline is either April 12th or 13th, 1990, in Mount Shasta, California. Uh, I'm going to use her real name because it's found in articles today. Dawn Slagle, she's listed as Jean in the book, was a 21-year-old mother and wife. She and her husband had had a fight that day, so she took a walk with her four-month-old baby to clear her mind. She was at a local shopping center when she crossed paths with Keith. They started talking after he approached her, and she wasn't scared at first. He used her baby as a conversation starter, talking about how he missed his own kids. He was like, yeah, I'm divorced. Your baby's so sweet. It's been months since I've seen my own kids. Why are you out here by yourself? Just trying to make her comfortable. And eventually, she got in his car. And then they decided they were going to go get some beer. Um, The way Keith tells the story, she was drinking Jack Daniels straight out of the bottle, but you can't believe a word he says, so... I don't know if that's Absolutely. true. Um, he does say later that that he could provide evidence pertaining to that Jack Daniels bottle, but Definitely. we'll just go through it. <laughs> um, so Keith's story was that they left on foot to get some beer, and then Don asked him to drive to a local lookout point. The way he tells it, Don bragged about being able to give great oral sex and came on to him. He got aggressive with her, and then she stopped, saying something like, I have a husband and my baby is here. I can't do this. But Keith forced her head back down. When Don screamed, he choked her with his elbow, trying to break her neck, but he wasn't strong enough. They struggled and fought and screamed at each other in the car for three hours. Oh, my God. That is so 
prolonged, exhausting, and miserable. Yeah. Can't imagine. He let it go on that long because he realized if he killed Dawn, he would also have to be responsible for the death of a baby, either directly or indirectly, and he couldn't bring himself to do that. So he drove Dawn back into town and let her go. And he was caught the very next day at a rest stop after showering. He was arrested and questioned, but eventually won the cops over with the story of a night of partying gone wrong. And, like, we were involved. Dawn changed her mind, probably because she was scared of what her husband would do. The cops, they don't drop the charges, but they let him go and say, quote, from now on, be careful who you party with. They did tell him to stay available until the matter was completely dealt with. Fucking boys club. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, done with it. Can't. I understand oh, totally, is. like, how these types of issues turn into a matter of he said, she said. Oh, for sure. I get yes, that. Absolutely. But to just give him the benefit of the doubt when he's six foot six. Right. No, thank you. Well, and it's because it's, like, men who, like, agree with him. Like, oh, well, if she started giving you oral and then she stopped, like, I understand why you tried to choke her. Like, it, you know, it's people who, men who think that as well. That they're like, no, nope, yes. I get it. Like, they see themselves in that situation and doing the same thing. And it being completely yeah. acceptable to do that. Yeah. Like, just to context for it, again, like, we're in 1990. Yeah. That attitude was completely pervasive with many groups of people. So, a slightly happy update for women taking back a moment of power. The network, A&E, released a movie about Jesperson's life in 2014, and Dawn sued the network and the writers. They depicted her as a sex worker, and the lawsuit alleged, quote, She was depicted in the Happy Face Killer movie as a prostitute, a person who voluntarily orally copulated a serial killer, a mother who committed sex acts for pay in front of her child, an unfit mother and a person who sought to extort money by threatening to file a false criminal rape complaint against Jesperson when she is actually a courageous victim and a survivor of attempted murder. Yes. All the snaps. (laughs) I wish that's where this ended. Oh, sad. But it's not. Um, Keith describes being nervous that he would be arrested again for assaulting Dawn and taken back into custody and thought about how he, quote, bet that bitch had done this to other men. Done what? He didn't hear anything, though. What did she do? <laughs> I don't know. I guess somehow in his mind this was entrapment. Oh. Nope. Okay, so he eventually doesn't hear anything, just starts traveling for work again, because obviously he can be in, like, four states in one day for his job, even, lo- like, more than that, depending on the area. So eventually... He's ticketed for a truck being overweight while he was driving with Peg in Iowa. He was an asshole about it, so the woman looked him up, found out that he had a warrant for sexual assault, and he was taken into custody. Hmm. Unfortunately, I don't know. This would be a great question for Jessa and Nick from getting off to answer. He was taken into custody again, where he was initially given a felony, but it was downgraded to a misdemeanor. So I don't understand why if this was still an open case and the cops let him go, like, yeah, 
They let him go without making a plan to move forward. Right. Like, without continuing, so I don't like, the investigation and, like... Yeah. Right? I'm sure, like, we just didn't include some of those details in this book. Yeah. Or I just don't know how the legal system works. Both are very likely true. <laughs> so... At first, they were going to send him to California and be like, that's where you did this, so you're getting extradited. But then, because it was downgraded to a misdemeanor, they wouldn't deal with the expense of it. So they let him go and told him to take care of it and stop by the courthouse the next time he was in Wairika. Yeah, like anyone would do that. Yeah. For that offense. Like a parking ticket? Maybe. That? No. (laughs) You're never seeing me in that courthouse. That's what anyone... Oh. Like, no one would go Oh, I would think... (laughs) My thought on that would be if you're not going to go for something as serious as possible sexual assault charges, you're never going back for shit. Right. That's true. Like, I might skip town on a parking ticket. I'm never coming back. (laughs) (laughs) He thought to himself as he rode a Greyhound bus home, dead people don't tell lies. Keith Jesperson would never again let someone get away from him. He said this combination of power and being unidentified made him feel like his father. Unstoppable. Mm. Literally getting away with murder. While he used the bathroom on a break in Montana during the bus ride, he wrote on the stall, I killed Tanya Bennett on January 21st, 1990 in Portland, Oregon. I beat her to death, raped her, and I loved it. What the Yes, I'm sick, but I enjoy myself too. People took the blame and I'm free. Feeling proud of himself, he added a smiley face. Mm. He left similar notes in other bathroom stalls around his trucking route, and they were seemingly ignored. He was anticipating that he would start seeing something about his proclamation in the news, and it just never happened. Because you wrote it on a fucking bathroom stall, you dumb fucking idiot. (laughs) You would think so. I mean, I don't know, though. I mean, I am who I am. So if I saw a declaration of guilt in a oh, bathroom totally. stall, yes. I would People call like 911. Would, yes, for sure. But like, <laughs> I would say most of the population is not doing that. Well, also you have to consider too, like I didn't think about this while I was writing it. It's 1990. You can't just hop on the internet. Right. That's true. Like you can. Right. There could have been people certainly... who called and like, you know, no one ever knows. No one knows about that now. Except those people. I mean, I think that's completely why. Because how many people are actually going into that specific stall at the truck stop every day? Right. And then, like, just the communication lines. And, like, how much graffiti is in that bathroom? Like, you'd have to, I don't know, like, you'd have to, depending on how much is there, you know, pick and choose what you read depending on how long you're in the bathroom stall. (laughs) Like, who knows? Oh, my gosh. So, October of 1990. He was back with Peg, living with her children in the house where he murdered Tanya Bennett, when he found out one of his sons had gotten a bad concussion. He and Peg moved her kids from Portland to Spokane so Keith could be close to his kids. And things were good for a while, but Peg started getting on his nerves. She was a trucker, too, so they would drive together to get further on each trip, but he was angry about the imbalance of work between them. He was much larger and did the majority of driving and all of the loading. He complained that she was 98 pounds, didn't know her ass from her elbow, and was a lot better at fucking than trucking. Oh, oh no. I laughed very oh, hard goodness. when I read that quote, and I hated myself. I I'm like, oh, I don't want to be laughing. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, 
we move to February 1991. Keith ends up getting fired for the Mount Shasta incident. His bosses find out. And he gets a job on a fishing boat in Alaska, but said it wasn't for him and moved back to Washington. Boy, you should have stayed he got a, in Alaska. You never would have been I caught. wish he would have <laughs> fallen off that fucking fishing boat into that deep, cold, salty mm, ocean. Yeah. Get fucking eaten by a shark, bitch. <laughs> but instead, he got a trucking job in Yakima and lived in his truck until he and Peg could get together again. She was back at her home in Portland. Oh, my gosh. While driving one night, he decided to attack a woman he knew worked at a lookout outpost on Lava Butte in Bend. So he's in Bend, Oregon. This is kind of like an outdoor, like, you know, like a national park, not a national park, but just like a very public populated outdoors area during the day. And this is like a lookout security spot where like if you were in trouble, needed directions, whatever, you could just pop in. And he knew a woman worked at that one. He had seen her before. So he is seen climbing up the tower. Luckily for him, he had tossed his crowbar down moments before as he was hiking up to her office. He was seen by a cop and he starts running. Like he dropped the crowbar and turned around and ran back down. And then his boss, like the cop called in the license plate and said, it looks like there's an abandoned truck out here. What's going on? So his boss called him pretty quickly and was like, don't do shit like that. And he was just like, I got really restless and tired and I've been taking, like he took shitloads of no-dos caffeine pills to Mm. keep him awake so he just said like sometimes i have to pull over and get out and run and like be outside to wake up and he was like well just don't be fucking weird (laughs) so (laughs) i assume that's what his boss said (laughs) so he decides that if he could be known as friendly to people in these areas he would have less trouble picking up sex workers so keith said how many years of his life did it take him to figure that out this guy is At a least one. idiot. Yeah. So, well, he went back and apologized to the worker for scaring her and was like, I'm so sorry. I run routes through here all the time. I just figured this was a safe place for me to stop and run. I don't and have a normal schedule. And I was really. Office. Yeah. So he was like, I was just like doing my, my run hike. No. Don't worry about that crowbar someone's going to find in the woods later. Mm-hmm. Wasn't uh, mine. But, like he says, if he was trusted, he would have less trouble picking up sex workers because the idea is that he was going after any kind of woman that he knew would be alone at first. And then he narrows in on sex workers and thinks that if he has a good reputation, they'll trust him. And he said, quote, they were in no position to blow the whistle. I figured they deserved what they got. Most of them were dopers anyway. Mm. I can't even tell you the thought that I had about it because... It was just not fit. (laughs) Not fit to share. (laughs) Uh, So the next point in our timeline, I'm a little confused on the timing of it. Between the book and two different articles and the Wikipedia page, we are somewhere between September 16th and August 30th, 1992. Okay. Somewhere between August 30th and September 16th. That's where we're like backing this timeline up to. At a truck stop in San Bernardino, a woman with no luggage asked Keith for a ride somewhere. She said she didn't really have a destination, but Phoenix would be nice. He agreed, and they left together. She said her name was Claudia. They stopped for lunch and showers, and Keith paid her way for everything. When they went back to the truck, he tried to kiss her, and she froze. She allegedly said, if you want sex, say so, and I'll tell you how much. 
He answered that he didn't pay for sex and laid down beside her in the truck. And he has like a mattress cabin behind where he sits in the cab. He raped her quietly and he claims that she started to at least pretend to be into it towards the end. And he bought her cigarettes at the next stop. And he then claimed that she asked him if she could get some crank. And he threw a fit. And he goes on this big diatribe about, like, I knew that's what she wanted. All women ever want is something from me. And especially something, like, I don't agree with. So she gets really fucking angry. And he steps out. He comes back to the truck. I think he went to the bathroom or something. Comes back and she's on his CB radio asking if anyone could get some crank. Which, like, those channels are monitored. Yeah. He was furious. So he offers her $20 spending money in exchange for saying, like, get the fuck off my radio, stop misbehaving in my truck, and leave me alone. But he kind of wants to keep her around. So he's like, okay, here's $20. And she responds angrily, according to him... That she let him have sex with her, so she wanted all the money in his wallet. She allegedly threatened to report him if he didn't give her all his money, and he responded by choking her. Taping her hands and feet together, he strangled her until she lost consciousness, and he pulled her back into the sleeping area of the rig. She was still alive, and he held her inside the truck for hours. He was sexually assaulting her a second time when he heard people outside the truck. It was two police officers with a dog, but they were just using the truck as shade. So he lay there until they walked away. He kept her for several more hours, choking her and letting her come back to consciousness before finally ending her life and then taking a nap beside her before taking the body to Highway 95 near the border of Arizona. He rationalized Claudia's death by saying to himself that she was just another Dawn, labeled in the book as Jean, that would cause another man problems, and so he was saving other people from the type of threats that Claudia made against him. Keith also talks about knowing he had thrown his life away at this point. He wasn't worried about being caught because he knew life as a free man would end eventually. Most importantly, and sadly, to this day, Claudia is formally unidentified. Mm. No one has claimed her, and we don't know her last name. That's so sad. Um, And... Unless the state police handle this investigation, she was found in Blythe, California, and their police station number is 760-922-6111. And then we move to the middle of October 1992, Cynthia Lynn Rose in Turlock, California. Keith was assigned to run an overnight load of beef, and he pulled into a truck stop to sleep for a while. He said a woman immediately came up to his door and stood on the runner, asking him if he wanted a party. He reached down and groped her and said that was all he needed and to leave him alone. She pressed him, and he said, I only grabbed your breast to see if you were a cop. He was like, that was the only way I could think to see if that was for real or not, because I was interested later, but I needed to sleep. And as he lay down, he did think about how pretty she was in her red sweater, but he also thought about Eileen Warnos. He doesn't mention her by name, but he thinks about, quote, the lot lizard that murdered innocent Mm. truckers that were out on the road 16 to 17 hours a day for their families. This guy is the biggest misogynist, like literally the definition of misogynist. Misogynist, narcissist, literally has no concept of reality. Absolutely none. 
the idea that he equates himself with truckers who are on the road for 17 hours a day for their families like yeah you're doing that but like you ain't the same no no you're doing nothing for your family absolutely nothing and you're literally the exact same as eileen actually worse because you're raping (laughs) and murdering people I just, this is what makes me want to go back to school and get a psych degree. So I can just look at this and be like, this is what's wrong with you. Yeah. (laughs) He was abruptly woken up as the same woman opened his door and clambered into the truck sometime later. Furious and confused, he grabbed her by the throat and slammed her down on the mattress. Before he realized it, her breathing had slowed. Mad at himself, he peeked out of the curtain in the truck and saw two women by the door. The woman came in. He left immediately and was on the road for a while when he suddenly panicked and remembered the other two women didn't just die after the first time he strangled them. So he pulls over again, gagged her, and bound her limbs on another stop to be sure that she couldn't surprise him if, in fact, she wasn't dead. A few hours later, he pulled into the parking lot of a cafe called Blueberry Hill, which is gross and weird because we have one. But ours is not rural. No. Um, it was still dark out, and he dropped her first in the soft dirt and then slung her onto a pile of garbage and placed tumbleweeds on her body. Mm. He sped away, desperate for distance from what he had done. He tempted fate that day by sleeping in his truck across from a state police office. He again became disgusted with himself and thought about how he should take his own life, but he didn't. And he came to the conclusion that maybe there was no God and maybe there was no devil and maybe he would never see a judgment day. That's I th- one of the most interesting parts for me in this, like reading how he he goes in between and out of thinking that he's going to see a reckoning mm-hmm. for his actions, like making decisions based on the idea that he will eventually be caught but then afterwards, like directly afterwards, he always has a moment where he's like, I got away with it again. Yeah. I guess I'm just better than everyone for some reason. November 1992, Lorianne Petland. Keith was again running beef from California to Oregon for the first week of November, and he stopped at his favorite truck stop. He wanted company and came across Lori Petland, a sex worker that he had called before. He notes for Olson in writing the book that she raised her prices every time, but he was such a satisfied customer that he didn't complain. On this night, though, after a session with Lori, she demanded double the cost. He had taken his time, and she said her pimp would take everything, leaving her with no profit. She got angry when he refused and threatened him, reminding reminding him that she knew his full name and who he worked for. He told her that she didn't know what she was dealing with, and when she yelled back that she was going to call the cops, he dragged her back down to the same mattress where two other women had met the same fate. Mm. He pushed his fist into her throat over and over again until he killed her. He drove with her body in the car until 2 a.m., where he found a parking lot with a security fence around it. There were again blackberry bushes around one side and an overflowing dumpster. He details stealing her money and pulling her out of the rig by her hair and letting her fall to the ground. (sighs) He just through the whole thing, too, talks about how he's doing his kids a disservice and how he can't believe he's such a monster for them. But then you do that. You don't even, like, treat them 
their dead bodies with respect after this horrifying thing you've done that you claim you can't believe you've done. No, and that's like, what is so fascinating yeah. to me is he is the exact same as Gary Ridgway. Women that Ridgway respected were, like, revered. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think that he ever, like, Jesperson never got to a point in his life where he really felt that way about a woman. Yeah. He almost got there, but he also, I think in his own brain, there was no woman that was good enough. He was always going to say, this woman is a user. She uses yeah. drugs. She uses me for money. He, he never would have been women. happy. No, he would have never found anyone. No. Yeah, he does hate women. And I, I, I don't think that he understood why for a long time. He, um, in March of 1993, was running a job in Corning, California. He took a break at a truck stop that had a cafe inside and spotted a woman sitting alone. He said she didn't seem like a sex worker, but she did look desperate. He told the waitress to add whatever that woman wanted to his check, and they ended up leaving together with Keith agreeing to let her stay in his truck until he was back in Sacramento. The woman that he thought was named Cindy had a sister there she could stay with in Sacramento. He said they stopped again after 40 miles, both using the bathroom. He claims when Cindy returned, she had put on some makeup and fixed her hair and her blouse was unbuttoned. They had, quote, consensual sex in the truck. And after, she commented that it was cozy in the sleeping cabin cabin, and they should stay there all night. He answered, oh, we will. And she looked alarmed and asked, what does that mean? He said, it means I'm going to kill you. He ended her life the same way as Lori and Claudia. He hid her behind a pile of rocks near some bushes a few miles away from another truck stop. After this murder, he said he started to realize it wasn't very important for him to hide the bodies well. He said, quote, When killing strangers, it's only necessary to make a clean getaway. A dead body has no traceable links when you're driving cross-country. Infuriates me. Drives me to only talk about people who do this. Yeah. And unfortunately, we're not done. <laughs> Fall of 1993, it's noted at this point that Keith Jesperson told a friend named Billy Smith that he had killed five women, and Billy told him to see a shrink. To our knowledge, Billy never told police about this conversation. Fuck you. Yeah, fuck you, Billy. A few months after this, Keith met a woman named Julie Winningham, a woman he would have a casual, on-and-off relationship with. She would ride with him, and he enjoyed her company enough that he didn't murder her as soon as she got in his truck. He ended up dumping her, though, because he claimed she was too concerned with smoking pot and he didn't agree with doing drugs. Around this time, Keith hears another story on the news about Laverne Pavlinak and John Sosnowski, the couple convicted of Tanya Bennett's murder. He gets very frustrated that he still isn't known for his crimes and decides to take it a step further than bathroom graffiti. He sends a letter to the Washington County Courthouse. Page 163 of this book. The title of the chapter is Ignored Again. The letter read, I killed Miss Bennett January 20th, 1990, and left her one and a half miles east of Lateral Falls on the switchback. I used a half-inch soft nylon rope burnt on one end, fray cut on the other, and tied it around her neck. Her face, her teeth protruded from her mouth. Death was caused by my right fist, pushed into her throat until she quit moving. Threw her Walkman away. Her purse, 
$2. I threw into the sandy river. I cut the buttons off her jeans. I had raped her before and after her death. I left her facing downhill and her jeans by her ankles. I did not know any of them. Nope. Upset side. Yes. <laughs> very, very much. April 1994. He sends his first letter to the Oregonian, where journalist Phil Stanford receives it. He sends another after a few weeks of no reaction. Keith describes in the last six months of 1994 being very confused as to why no one took him seriously, and he tried to learn more about his own compulsions. He read articles about his unidentified self, even going so far once as to contact the author of an article with corrections, and gave the author the location of a body that hadn't been found yet, and still nothing. No. I'm just like, who are these people right. who don't react like to this? I mean, I don't even know what I would do. Even if I thought the person was full of shit, I would mail them back. Well, yeah. And be like, give me more. Yeah. <laughs> so Keith began starting fires to resist the urge to kill. Um, and before we talk about the next thing in 1994, one of, if I have my bookmark in the right place. This is really long, so I'm just going to stop, like, halfway through it. This is what he sent to what he said, the largest paper in the Northwest, the Oregonian. I would like to tell my story, exclamation point. I am a good person at times. I always wanted to be liked. I have been married and divorced with children. I didn't really want to be married, but it happened. I have read your paper and enjoyed it a lot. I have always wanted to be noticed. Like Paul Harvey, front page, etc. So I started something I don't know how to stop. Mm. On or around January 20th, 1990, I picked up Sonia Bennett and took her home. I raped her and beat her real bad. Her face was all broke up. Then I ended her life by pushing my fist into her throat. I got a high and then the panic set in. He describes the same thing as earlier. The rope that he used. And then says that there was no reaction, so later he sent more details. My last victim was a street person. It was raining in Corning, California. She was wet, and I offered a ride to Sacramento. I stopped at a rest area near Williams and had her. I put her body on or near a pile of rocks about 50 yards north of Highway 152 westbound and 20 miles from Santanella. It was getting hard to trust my inner self. I kept arguing with my conscience. I had to get away from long-haul trucking. Victims are too easily found. So I quit and found a good job driving where I am in the public eye and out of harm's way. The truck has a bold name on the side, so it's easily recognized. I got away from what became easy. I do not want to kill again, and I want to protect my family from grief. I would tear it apart. I feel bad, but I will not turn myself in. I'm not stupid. And he just goes on to talk about freedom of the press and his own actions and how he's noble somehow. No. So he also, in 1994, when he wasn't busy writing letters detailing the circumstances of his crimes to the Oregonian, he visited his kids. Um, the three of his children wanted a trampoline, so he bought him one and put it together as a surprise. And he said at that point he was honestly happy that his ex-wife Rose had remarried and she was doing great. He said she deserved that, and he thought sadly as he left that evening that not being there for his kids was his biggest crime. 
Uh, and I just take this time to remind you to, re- to read Melissa Moore's book. Uh, I think it's called Shattered Silence. I'll link to it in the show notes and watch some interviews with her because she's very well spoken about her relationship with her father. Uh, and then the fires that he was setting is pretty unremarkable compared to everything else. Right. But he did start some that burned like thousands of acres in California. Jeez. He set like over two dozen big fires. What the fuck? He said it worked for a while until the fall of 1994. In September or October of 1994, he met a woman named Suzanne in Florida. She is now known as Jane Doe Suzanne. Mm. In the book, he says her name was either Sue Shannon, Susanna, something like that. He didn't remember. She asked where he was going, and he didn't know yet. He said he was going to go to sleep, so come back later, and put her luggage outside the door so he would remember to find her and talk about it. She said she wanted to go to Lake Tahoe, and he said he could definitely get her to Reno, but he wasn't sure if he could do better than that. That day, he was sent to Georgia to load his truck, and then his first return stop would be in Boise. They got to their destination and got the truck loaded by 1 a.m., and then they stopped off the interstate to sleep at 3 a.m. They shared the sleeper, both clothed, but Keith woke up and undressed, grabbing Suzanne while she slept. She screamed loudly, knowing if he got caught with her, he would lose his job, so he felt like he had nothing to lose. He lied to her, and said they were out in the middle of nowhere where no one would hear her anyway. So she stayed quiet while he forced her to have sex with him. She said, He said that she seemed to relax after that, but he knew he couldn't take any chances. He decided to assault her one more time before the end, and she screamed again. He lost his temper and choked her to death like the others. He took her to an Okaloosa County exit and hit her in some roadside bushes. At that point, he took the sleeping bag, like the bedroll and whatever blankets he had, out of his truck and put them on the road and drove back and forth over them several times in a puddle because he realized at that point he had never done anything with it and he had killed five women on that sleeping bag. Jeez. Before he left the scene, he, quote, tagged Suzanne slash Jane Doe with two white zip ties around her neck as an ID in case he read about someone else taking credit for his crime. And then we're going to move to January 1995. Angela Subrise. I think it's Subrise or Subrise, S-U-B-R-I-Z-E. On January 20th, 1995, Keith was at a hotel in Spokane. His truck had popped a tire and sparked into flames a week before, so he was stranded while they tried to figure out what happened and set him up with a new rig. He met Angela in the hotel bar and asked if she had already checked into her room. She had not, and he suspected she never had a room to begin with. He offered dinner and to share his own room. He said, I never force myself on anyone. It's up to you. We might behave and we might not. She happily followed him to the elevator and made herself comfortable while he ordered them pizza and a six-pack. And again, I inserted here reminder that this is Keith's story as we hear details about Angela's life. Uh, allegedly, she said she was a stripper and wouldn't mind showing off for him. He said that she left to go to the bathroom and put on a leather skirt when she came back. And they had consensual sex, and he left her $30 when he slipped out of the room to get back to work the next morning. He left her a note on how to get a hold of him, and a few days later, they reconnected. She wanted to go to Denver, and he wanted to see her again. 
So they met at her house in Spokane, and while Keith was glad she was there, the bad weather forecasted for his route was pretty severe, said there was going to be snow, so he knew he would need to not sleep for a couple days to keep his timetable in order. They allegedly had consensual sex after he navigated the truck through the Snoqualmie Pass snowstorm, and they drove on to Wyoming. There, he heard her talking on the phone to someone at a stop. It turned out to be her dad, and that's who they were going to go see. And for whatever reason, she said, my dad doesn't want to see me. So her tone switched immediately, and she called someone else that turned out to be an ex in Indiana. And that was her new destination. Angela followed Keith out to the truck and, quote, seduced him again. Right after they were finished, she demanded that they hurry and leave. He got pissed that she, quote, was acting like the boss instead of a piece of ass. No. <laughs> no. There's just not a lot to say. Uh, no, there's really not, other than fuck you. Yeah. Um, Wish he would have. He... Actually, I shouldn't say that. I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> the episode where we both get too mad to speak and the podcast is over. <laughs> Um, he was like, why are you badgering me? We have to go through Indiana, I guess, to get to whatever end goal was. They were going to go through there anyway. And he was like, it's fine. What's the rush? Her answer startled him. She said she thought she was pregnant and she wanted to get there and have sex with this guy quickly so it could be his baby. Mm. Keith paused for a minute and said, do you plan on saying the baby is mine if he doesn't want you? She answered, it crossed my mind, but you're a romantic and you'd want to marry me, and I don't want to be a boring married lady with a baby. He then claimed she jokingly took off her underwear and said, hey, we had a great time. We both enjoyed it. Let's have fun on this drive. He finishes out this section with these thoughts. A woman is the only person that knows if there will be sex that night. A man can only hope. Jump out of your own moving truck. Please. <laughs> End it all. <laughs> Do us all a favor. While they were driving down I-80, Keith stole the mace out of her purse and hit it while Angela was sleeping. They hit a snowstorm, and it was a slow trip. He was really sleep-deprived at this point and described seeing white streaks even when he closed his eyes from the snow. He stopped to sleep around 7 p.m., and Angela was angry that he wouldn't keep going. He told her over and over again to shut up, and it escalated into a yelling match. He finally slept, and after, went to the first rest stop he could find in Nebraska. He said he had to go to the bathroom, but just opened the door to make sure they were alone. I am going to stop at this point and say that if you do not want to hear a very graphic detail of some of the most horrendous things in your life, go ahead and skip forward about a minute and a half. Giving you time to skip. Make your choice. <laughs> He stooped back in, pushed her down, and shoved her face into the mattress. He started to tape her mouth shut, but she agreed, allegedly, to let him do what he wanted. Angela met the same end as the women before her. Keith choked her several times until she was finally dead, and then went to McDonald's to start covering for himself. He ordered two meals and contemplated Angela's life as she lay next to him while he ate. He thought she probably had fingerprints on file, and they'd been seen together for a week, and he decided he needed to make her unidentifiable. This is your last chance. Skip forward. Now, at least 45 seconds. 
Keith pulled off the road at 3 a.m. on January 23, 1995, just over five years past the death of Tanya Bennett. He pulled Angela's stiff body out of the truck and positioned her face down underneath it between the wheels so no one passing him would see too much. He connected her ankles with rope and then tied the other end to a cross section on the underside of the vehicle. He got back in his truck and drove onto the highway. He made it 12 miles before traffic caught up to him and he pulled over. He took the rest of Angela's disfigured body and hid it 50 feet from the roadside in a patch of tall grass. There would not even be dental work left to help identify her. Mm. He spent the rest of the day doctoring his logbook and backtracking to make his trail match his false evidence. After this murder, Keith again thinks about killing himself. As he, he said should. he made himself sick. <laughs> yeah, I agree. He said he made himself sick and he would rather die than live to see his children have to hear the details of his crimes. He also goes on a vandalism spree. And this is another part I would love to talk to Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh about. He, it's like he's acting out like a school person, like a little kid, like a little school guy. He's just like, oh, I'm going to be a bully and go do weird shit to people. He chained two trucks together and watched them try to drive away from each other and then figure out how they were going to cut the lock. He would go to rest stops and slash other truckers' tires. Probably seeing firecrackers. If, like, if, if doing that feeds this desire enough that he won't have to kill people. I think it's that, and it has something to do with being seen or like caught right. doing like something. Right, like if I'm caught doing this, maybe they'll then catch me and I'll be forced to stop. Maybe. And I think it's like a marker of his own, his own recklessness. He thinks he'll never get caught. So now it doesn't matter how big or small the crime is. He just wants to do shit that puts him in front of people and he wants to see what happens. March, 1995, Julianne Winningham. Keith Jesperson was in Troutdale, Oregon in March of 1995 when he happened to see his ex-girlfriend, Julie Winningham, at the Burns Brothers truck stop. He ignored her while he walked to the bathroom, debating if it was worth it to talk to her. He decided that since it was a break day and he had a gap in his logs, he could risk seeing what her company would cost. He almost nervously approached her, and they went inside to have a coffee. Within a couple hours, she admitted that she'd lost her driver's license and needed help paying a $700 DWI fine. He said he had her brand of cigarettes in the truck, so they went there. She kissed him quickly and said she wanted to go out and have some drinks. That usually meant she was good for the night, so he agreed. According to him, she got very drunk and they played pool, and around 11, they went back to the parking lot, and she asked him if they could get married, and he played along. They went to her mother's house at midnight to tell her the good news, and she was like, what the fuck is this? So they left. Yeah. I mean, they had a pretty not great relationship. Yeah. Julie and her mother, just because, um, well, as he described it, he was like, do you want to be in the room while two alcoholics fight? (laughs) That was his understanding of the situation. So Keith felt like Julie really did miss him. And before they left for the bar that evening, he was thinking about a plan to keep her as a true sex slave for more than just one night. But by the next morning, he was sure that she meant it this time and he was falling for her again. He woke her up that morning after they went out drinking with a coffee and a carton of cigarettes but she was quote in a bitchy mood again and talking about her wrecked car and all of her lawyer bills 
She wanted him to sign some sort of contract as part of the process for selling her car as a witness. I think she wanted to scrap it. And she needed someone to sign off on it. And he was thinking about getting out of that because he had, at this point, written letters to a newspaper and left notes in bathroom stalls. So he was like, I can't have my name on anyone's documents. So he's thinking about that while they go to one of her, quote, druggy friend's houses. She volunteered to buy pot for everyone and then looked at him. And he said he didn't know how to react without making a scene, so he furiously gave her $40 and then walked out. So she sticks around, smokes all the pot with her friends, and then they go back to the truck and spent a night there that made him forget his anger. After a few days of aggravation and back and forth, Keith and Julie got into another fight over money. She claimed that she had actually gotten two DWIs in one day, and she owed upwards of $2,000. I don't know anything about the legality of that claim, yeah. if it's possible to get two DWIs right. in one day. I guess if you have two cars, it is. Yeah, yeah I guess. Or if you, if you can manage to get in the system, out of the system, and get your car out of the tow lot by two, <laughs> and then you get another one that night. Right. Either way. Keith asked her if she saw anything but dollar bills when she looked at him, and she said she always lied about having sex with him, so she was ready to tell people that he raped her. Oh. And again, this is a common theme that he yeah. says, so I don't believe right. it one time. Yeah. He always says that this is what women yes. say, that they will file a false report. Yeah. So someone's lying. It's probably not seven right. women. it's definitely him. <laughs> he backed her into a corner in the truck and raped her, and then pulled her to the center of the bed and began choking her. She lost consciousness, and he taped her arms and legs and gagged her. He took off on the road wearing only shoes and a shirt. He drove for a while and then heard her stirring. She tried to get up but fell and cut her head. What happens next is detailed graphically in the book, and I'm not going to repeat it. It's all from his perspective, and he's a disgusting fucking human, not worth the seat his ass sat upon. And I just, at this point in the book, I was like, I'm not giving you any more fucking time. Yeah. He allegedly admitted all of his prior crimes to her as he strangled her to death. She was thrown down an embankment of the Columbia Gorge across from the Oregon side of the river where he left Tanya Bennett. Keith made it a few days without being caught, but he was uneasy and sensed that he was being tailed. His boss was vague about assignments and was missing details when he did have information, and he was very suspicious. He was eventually sent to pick up a load at a Las Cruces fairground, and they directed him to the back of the building instead of through the main gate. He backed into the very narrow loading area, and when he got out of the rig, he was arrested under suspicion of the murder of Julie Winningham. He's questioned for five hours, has DNA samples taken, and then they let him go. Of course they do. So, obviously, he knows they're hurting for evidence because they can't keep him. He offers to do a lie detector test, and... They kind of pull that off the table then, thinking, well, if he's offering, it's not going to be worth shit. But he knows that the DNA will eventually get him. So the cops offer to take him to a state dinner, a steak dinner, as an apology. And he declines, knowing it's just a plot to get him to talk. Yeah. So he leaves, goes to his next stop, and takes a bunch of Sudafed, Anacin, and extra-strength Tylenol. He takes about 40 different pills, but unfortunately, wakes up the next morning disoriented Obviously. has no idea what's going on leaves his own truck to go to the bathroom and then goes and gets in the wrong truck and gets punched the fuck out by the driver and lands on his ass 
and security people from the area and a cop come and take his keys away and he has to like fumble through explaining the scenario that he took too many sleeping pills the night before because he's been driving for so long and he was just super disoriented and this is like super early in the morning like he's already I think he did that at night and he had already slept like four or five hours when he woke up and was like shit I'm alive (laughs) and then sleeps again after they take his keys until noon Hears from his boss, and he yells at his boss. When he got taken in by the cops, they took some tarps that he was carrying, thinking that he used them mm-hmm. in the commission of a crime. And he basically yells at his boss and was like, don't even fucking talk to me about the lost product because you did that. I know you're cooperating. If you had lied or helped me out, this wouldn't have happened. Oh my God. But the boss says, well, the cops stopped working with me. Like, they roped me into this, but it seems like they're laying off now. Like, they haven't asked me to do anything else. So, do you want another assignment? And they just all move on with their lives. Oh, my gosh. But Keith knows that the end is nigh. It's going to happen. So, on March 24th, 1995, he writes his brother a letter. (laughs) Grab my disgusting book. It reads, Hi, Brad. Seems like my luck has run out. I will never be able to enjoy life on the outside again. I got into a bad situation and got caught up in emotion. I killed a woman in my truck during an argument. With all the evidence against me, it looks like I am truly a black sheep. The court will appoint me a lawyer and there will be a trial. I am sure they will kill me for this. I'm sorry I turned out this way. I have been a killer for five years. I have killed eight people, assaulted more. I guess I haven't learned anything. Dad always worried about me because of what I've gone through in the divorce finances, etc. I've been taking it out on different people. We pay so much child support. As I saw it, I was hoping they would catch me. I took 48 sleeping pills last night, and I woke up well-rested. The night before, I took two bottles of pills to no avail. They will arrest me today. Keith. He then details walking up to the mailbox and feeling sick as he dropped the letter inside, knowing that that was the end. So finally, on March 30th, 1995, he calls the detective who initially arrested him and turns himself in. He's taken into custody at a diner in Arizona with, I might add, no violence, hands handcuffed in front of him. They quietly march him out without a scene. He then details in the book the injustices of prison and how everyone treats him like a monster for being charged with rape. He has the audacity to say, I certainly hadn't confessed to rape, so where had they gotten that? And I thought we were all innocent until proven guilty. Why were the other guys in jail against me? Because you're a literal monster. The dissociation happening of, like, who you're going to meet in jail and who I am as a person is astounding. (laughs) Yeah. Like... I just couldn't even believe the thoughts that he had about jail. This was the point where I was like, I'm, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop writing this right here and just tell you <laughs> that he goes to jail. He is taken to Washington from Arizona and said he was surprised there were no film crews at the airport when he got oh there. God. They flew him there and didn't make him wear fucking handcuffs. What? He was working on a plan to call his brother and have him destroy the letter. He was regretting everything and thinking, okay, the cops on the plane allegedly told him, you'll probably get five to ten murder, five to ten years for this murder if we can prove it was second degree. Like, if that's all we can get, that's what you'll get. Why are you fucking helping right. him? Why what? are you giving him ideas? Don't talk to him. Boys club. 
Boys Club. It was just unreal. Like, I would get explaining someone's circumstances to them, but I wouldn't tell them, like... No. This is what you could possibly get if it's this. So, he was working on a plan to call his brother and have him destroy the letter. He is a fucking asshole and immediately acted like he came forward in order to save the two people who were, quote, wrongfully convicted for Tanya's murder. Oh, my God. So this is the point where he tells them where the real purse was, and he has to say all of this shit about where the purse is and all these other details to get them to let these other two people out of prison. And then all the newspaper articles I found about that couple was like, we're so grateful to be out of prison, which, like, I'm sure the guy was. Right. And the judge reamed that other woman's ass Uh, and was like, yeah, what you did is insane and unacceptable, but I guess four and a half years in prison is your crime. Like, that's your punishment for your crime. So don't ever let me see you again. Yeah. So he grabbed the media's attention by writing to them. He wrote a six-page letter, I believe it was six pages, to the Oregonian again. Um, He participates in gossip and fuels rumors of a stunt to have Marsha Clark interrogate him about his crimes while he's hooked up to a lie detector. He corresponds with other serial killers. Don't know why that's fucking allowed. Um, just a slight list of people. Or, like, the things that he's involved in first. He explained later that he had been deliberately sowing doubts about his reliability and sanity. He lied to everyone about, I did it, I didn't do it, this is where evidence is, or that's not my evidence, I don't know what that is. Ringmaster to his own media circus. Happy Face Killer denies Wyoming slang. Serial Killer's cyberspace forays push the limits. Jesperson offers another confession. Murder admissions were lies. Man who claims to be killer, still an enigma. And then a public defender talking about the case said he is literally pissing in the wind and, might I add, pissing all over himself in the process. He is a fucking nightmare. This is where I stopped writing about his crimes completely and was just like, this is uncalled for, unheard of. He corresponds with Arthur Shawcross, another river killer. He writes other murderers, Patrick Kearney, the garbage bag killer. He writes with people from the Manson clan. I don't know why he's allowed to do all of this. Yeah. Even if he didn't get a response. Right. They can go through your mail. Why the fuck are these even being They sent? may not have been. He, well, that's true. They may not have been. Someone talks about um, how Arthur Shawcross didn't get back to him. <laughs> I think some people did, I though. Oh, this is so funny. This. He's talking about um, correspondence with Jeff Shapiro. And he did answer him. That's another murderer that was in Supermax in Colorado. He said, if you want some press, go out and get it, man. It's not hard. Just stick your nose where it doesn't belong. Act arrogant. Do something weird. The media will make you famous. Then this silly son of a bitch hinted to me that he was the Green River Killer. (laughs) I just threw the book (laughs) in the floor. I said, he is a complete media whore. He wrote to other notable killers for attention on top of everything else. He was sentenced to life three times over in Oregon and caught another life sentence from California. He is rotting at the Oregon State Penitentiary, and I can't wait to hear the news that he's no longer breathing this earth's air. End of story. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Pure trash. Disgusting. Like, the level of 
the level of a bunch of things I'm not qualified to talk about, like nar- narcissism and psychopathy, yep. that's yep. him. Yep. Okay, well, you're off the hook for the next recording. <laughs> we will save my fun one for next time. That was clearly more time than we had for even one episode. So I know that we teased, or did we even, that Olivia's story was did. kind of fun today. <laughs> yeah. And I robbed you guys of that Sorry, with my trash. Guys. With Keith Jesperson's trash. You have to wait so. till next week or the week after whenever we record again. Sorry. It'll be witchy. I That's finally am bringing you something witchy. I promised that for like a month and a half, I feel like. Okay, well then, the next episode you get, she'll bring you something witchy, and I'll bring you something that's not this disgusting. (laughs) I will try. I texted her earlier today, and I was like, Olivia, the lightest you're ever going to get from me is the story of Bernie. (laughs) Or maybe it was Satan. The Satan story. It's fine. So I'll work on correcting that for next (laughs) episode. Maybe I'll find a nice cult that's funny. Yeah, there you go. All right, guys, we have to get off here and go to bed. So again, thank you, patrons. Let's keep um, finding this quest for good news in the news. Okay. Send us nice things, and we'll talk about some nice things at the beginning of the episode um, in addition to the work that we still need to be doing. that would be very nice. So until next time. We're here to keep you up at night. Do I say that? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I couldn't remember. <laughs> We're all brain dead. Jesus. We have to go. Hail Satan. Pop some bottles. Ooh, you have a clink. I Very have two nice. glasses. Very nice. <laughs> oh, yours is still better. <laughs> that girl rang. <laughs> she rang your bell. And now she goes to bed. Yes. Good Bye, night, guys. guys.